you the quantum mechanics. Yes, we're the quantum mechanics. We're the paranormal podcast for believers, doubters and everyone in between. Ben, I've been a bit obsessed with uh, a really blurry photo this week. <laughs> Have you been out <laughs> making holiday snaps again? No, I haven't. Oh, okay. It was the image. It was the image of the black hole. Ah, yes. I just, I, I just. It's funny that, isn't it? You know that it's just. If you just saw that image, you wouldn't give it a second glance. But it's a bloody picture of a black hole. It's pretty amazing. Fifty-five million light years away. Um, capture. I love the name of the telescope, the Event Horizon Telescope. As well. Yes. Hopefully, it do, hopefully it doesn't end up like the movie. <laughs> oh God, no. But the amazing thing about that is, as you quite rightly say, fifty-five million light years. What we're looking at is something that, well, we're looking back in time fifty-five million years, which is extraordinary. Yeah. 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 And I love the fact as well. I was thinking about this that in in this world where everybody's kind of fighting for, for supremacy or fighting literally i loved the fact that it was such a collaboration between different uh, organizations across the globe and loads of scientists working together in order to capture this just incredible image i, I love that i mean it's probably a slightly idealized view of the uh astronomy world but they they do tend to kind of club together and help each other out and work together i think that's such a nice yeah yeah nice thing yeah yeah no it is it is and i think um that's the deep joy of science isn't it it's kind of a unification because science relies on facts and truth so that is where people from different ideologies come together because there is only there's only empirical evidence in science so yeah that's great The, yeah, brought a smile to my face. The other thing, I did wonder whether you were going to say the um, the doorway on Mars. Oh, I did see that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, I, you know what? I've always wanted to do because it's always Mars, isn't it? Or there's structures on the Moon and all that, and all the photos come out. Yeah, and I, I almost want somebody to do deserted parts of Earth and just see what you can come up with. Do you know what I mean? Because it is it is pareidolia, a lot of it, isn't it? I mean, I did, it is it is a strange image when you zoom in on it, but I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure it's a, an alien doorway. No, no. I've, the, I've read many explanations for what it is. It's, it's sadly very dull, so I'm not even going to talk about it. But, yeah, it's not an alien doorway, but, yeah. yeah. We'll but, stick with the black hole. We'll stick... <laughs> We'll stick with we'll stick with the black holes. Yes. So, what I'm bringing to the show this week is this is something that came up whilst I was away. So, everybody knows I was away in Devon and Cornwall for uh, a couple of weeks, and Devon and Cornwall, and I think specifically Cornwall, is steeped in the law of the fairy folk. But they have their own very specific fairy folk. And you all know how much I love the fairy folk. And when I was looking in those terrible, tatty shops which sell, you know, gunk to tourists, there's quite a lot of, uh, like, pixies and the other thing is Tommyknockers. And every time I say Tommyknocker in my head, I think of the Stephen King film. And yeah. I thought, oh, this is a perfect topic for the podcast. 
and then I got into researching it and quite often happens you go oh gosh that's bigger than I thought so this takes us into the realm of breakaway civilizations but that's that's where the story is going let me just start at the beginning do do you peter know what a tommy knocker is have you come across these oh, I, I i haven't literally come across a tommy knocker <laughs> <laughs> otherwise i'd probably be doing the episode and not you right but, right right um, <laughs> i don't what i know about them are they are outside of the stephen king film they are they're to do with mining i think yeah there's some connection with mining very big in cornwall uh and their fairy folk they're they're the three that they're like they're like cornish pixies and i don't mean that in the terms of a tribute <laughs> a west country tribute band <laughs> to, to the american superstars this monkey's gone to devon there you go that would, that would be the line um yeah that's what i know <laughs> no you're, you're 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 completely right so in the in the folklore of cornwall and then this in sort of goes around to wales and cornwall and wales they're not close but they're not a huge distance away they are considered the earliest inhabitants of Wales and ah. legend has it that they, uh, the knockers, uh, we're going to call them the knockers because it's just easier. They taught the art of mining to the Britons about 4,000 years ago and very specifically tin mining. And uh, Yes, because t- tin mining is massive in cornwall and uh, you might go on to this the only other thing i just f- fact that came into my head i remember talking to somebody about it they get their name this could be wrong they get their name because miners could hear them knocking yes that's exactly right that's exactly it is right, right. that yes. is true okay yes that's that's correct and right. that knocking this so the reason why they become more well known is because in the early days of the US as a country, they were importing Cornish miners. And the legend goes that, so obviously when they were in their home territory, they would knock largely to indicate this is where you will find a tin deposit. But then in the US, the Cornish miners bought over what I guess historians would say is a superstition, but others would say is a knowledge. And I think that's the difference, and that's where we're uh, that's what we're going to talk about. Okay. But um, you're right, the knocking, okay. it's about either directing people towards where they will find what they're looking for, i.e. tin, or it's about a warning. That is largely what it's about. So they're considered as um very um considerate small people they're not really thought of as evil but sometimes that does change so they are they have got a mischievous side so sometimes miners reported that the tommy knockers would eat their lunch hide their tools pinch them and even knocking their hard hats off and then there's another deeper story where it says that um, sometimes 
the the Tommy Knockers would call out people's names to lure themselves to to lure the people deeper into shafts, and then cause right. cave-ins. And this is supposedly around when the Tommy Knockers found that they weren't um, being appreciated. So miners would generally leave some food out for them, be respectful of them, and if as legend goes, that they felt they weren't being respected, they would have terrible consequences. And seems a bit much if you don't leave your lunch out, you kill someone. But um, but it sounds like they're, they're within the Tommy Knockers community, there was a hardcore breakaway group. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So um, I'll give you an example. So... Uh, if we take the Phoenix Gold Mine, which is located in Idaho Springs, Colorado, this mine was originally discovered in 1871, and two men were murdered close to the mine, and their remains were found buried inside. Of the two deceased people who were found, one was said to have been a witch who was into black magic. Now, the owner of the mine said that a visitor told him that they'd had a conversation with the person just before they vanished and the the mine owner then says that they had heard whispers of the names of these people being reported by the miners and the miners had given the uh given the explanation that that was the knockers so we've kind of got what we've got in that case is like two dead people and people who were working in the mine saying oh yeah we'd heard these strange mysterious voices calling to them and so those two murders were put down to knockers which is kind of that is the antithesis of being taught how to do tin mining and leading people towards you know uh treasure and well it sounds like the other the amazing thing about that it sounds like they Let's assume they weren't killed by the Tommy Knockers, but th- at that time there was enough of a belief that you know it's the Tommy Knockers. Case closed. It's that that's quite amazing in itself, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And then I found this really interesting, um, I guess, diary entry, but I found it on social media from a guy who grew up with his dad being a miner and relating his stories about tommy knockers so he says don't go anywhere near the mines my parents said was when i was in grade school that admonishment carried little authority and less credibility because my mining father had taken me into the mines many mine tunnel entrances were open then and even a few shafts invited inspection I rarely ventured beyond where a flashlight was needed and my parents' stories of what might befall me should I venture too far underground protected me from serious danger. When I was older and more likely to take risks, even just as a form of rebellion, my mother resorted to the parenting technique of my grandparents' stories of Tommy Knockers. Trickster Knocker tales were told both in jest and in seriousness, tools were said to disappear items fell down shafts when dropped by deranged wee folk they extinguished lamps and candles and left miners hopeless in the dark during my mother's generation parents told their children tommy knocker stories most likely fabricated 
then staunched any curiosity for entering mines. A Cornish miner's fondness for sharing the underground with short stature helpers was replaced with negative Hansel and Gretel mythology. The possibility of Tommyknocker encounters prevented impressionable children from venturing too far from their yards. So that's that's a cautionary tale. It's then, a cautionary it tale. It turned into a cautionary tale to stop people going down these mine entrance. But I think what you seem to be saying is it's almost a perversion of the original stories in order to ch- to scare children or keep them away. That's exactly right. And this story is told in America where the original stories of the Cornish knockers are being, I guess, retold, but they are told as as these cautionary tales. It reminds me very much of like the Granny, uh, Jenny Greenteeth story yep. of the lakes. I was thinking that, actually, while you were talking about it. It, it. It's a way of keeping children away from the fire. But when you really dig into it, that doesn't hold weight. The these things turn out to have sightings and real life encounters. So here is somebody. This is the uh, this is the tale of an actual miner who did start life in Cornwall and ended up in America. And he says, "Yes, I've seen them. They're about two feet tall and often described as greenish in color. I would say they look like men." and are most often spied wearing a traditional miner's outfit. So he didn't didn't say much. That's just his... That's just an interview taken in the 1920s from uh, a US newspaper. But then the newspaper goes on to say, the Tommyknockers were first heard of in the United States when Cornish miners worked in the western Pennsylvania coal mines in the 1820s. When the California gold rush began, these experienced Cornish miners were welcomed and often sought after by the uh, by the mine owners. So, what we're talking about here is, again, it sounds very similar to lots of other tales that we've heard, like, uh, are these things real? Are they, are they a mythology? But, d- but does the mythology travel with the people? Right. Mm. But, the fact that they are given credence for teaching the Britons how to mine is kind of interesting. But then I started looking into, like, so when when we did leprechauns, I was I was looking into um, real life leprechauns, and I found a few encounters. And what you do when you look into knockers you find a few people who describe them as real and a few people, like I've just said, who describe them as cautionary tales. And it's really, really hard to find a somebody who says, yep, I saw this, I had a conversation with them, or they led me to this. It's all tales of, oh, there was a knock over here, there was a thing over there. And when you're working underground, there's going to be noises, it's going to be dark, mm-hmm. it's going to play on the imagination. And so, weirdly, after I'd looked at those encounters and those stories, I started thinking a little bit wider. And what led me to that was when... We when when you look at recent UFO encounter stories, 
some of the tales relate to breakaway civilizations and the fact that perhaps ufos don't come from outer space perhaps they come from somewhere more terrestrial i.e a secret civilization or yes or, or a parallel universe or but yes more a, a, a secret civilization that's remained hidden underground by the sounds of underground it. <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely and that would explain a whole load about the ufo law but it might also explain the tommy knockers so we'll get onto a bit more evidence about that in a minute i'm not leaving the the tommy knockers there but that led me into um and this <laughs> we're joining the dots here the ghost airships the ghost airships of the late 1800s right. Where, where we discussed with Nigel Watson a few, well, last year, or I think it was last year, wasn't it? Yeah. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm thinking now in the, in the investigation, is there a similarity between the pilots of the ghost airships, aliens, Tommy knockers, leprechauns, all, all of these phenomena, are they right. connected? And whilst I was investigating this, here's a story that I hadn't previously uncovered, but it's it's in a Guardian newspaper archive, and it's about the ghost airships, and it goes like this. In April 1897, John Haley and Adolf Wenk of Springfield, Illinois, reported a flying craft of a similar type whose pilot told them that it was a new invention flown at night to attract less attention. The pilot stated he had left Quincy, 100 miles to the west, so uh, that's a town, only 30 minutes earlier, an impossibility for an aerial object of the time. Similar objects were reported in Indiana, where a crew were making on-the-spot repairs. The pilot was tracked down by the press in Martinville, where he made the statement that he had an airship in Brown County undergoing repairs and three machines flying in central states of the US. While many reports of the time are undoubtedly hoaxes dreamt up by newspaper editors to increase circulation, there remain some tantalising unexplained facts. In 1897, for more than 30 minutes, a huge airship was witnessed by jurors, judges and lawyers who had gathered outside the courthouse in Harrison, Nebraska. It had bright white light and coloured lights around it and it was oval shaped with a box-like structure hang hanging from it and a propeller at the stem. So this is a... Um, this is a story, this is a retelling of a contemporary story uh, at, at the time and these things they they sound much less like ufos much more like dirigibles between april 13 and 17 1897 there were 38 reported sightings of airships in 23 counties mostly wow. in north central texas nine counties reported multiple sightings with hill county accounting for four including two in hillsborough and one each in whitney and Os uh, osceola I'm going to say Osceola. Tarrant, Fannin and Ellis counties had three each and Grayson, Bowie, Collin, Hunt and Johnson counties had a pair apiece. I didn't know the Americans named 
their counties after British game show hosts, but yeah. <laughs> S- single sightings were reported from Lamar, Wise, Denton, Hunt, Parker, Dallas, Kaufman, Wood, Erith, Navarro, McLennan, Freeston, Millam, Travis, and Jefferson counties. Newspapers of the day reported the sightings straight-faced, although no one can read more than a little tongue-in-cheek writing into some of the dispatches from community correspondents. Descriptions of the airships varied somewhat, but there was a general consensus that they had cigar-shaped bodies or cabins 50 to 60 feet long with propellers at each end, large bat-like wings and huge floodlights fore and aft. Most witnesses saw neither pilot nor crew, but in some cases, not only did observers see people manning the ships, but talk to them. The Dallas Morning News correspondent uh, at... Wakahachi reported a long conversation between Judge Love of the community and an airship crew which claimed to be from the North Pole and this is where we get these really tall (laughs) tales trying to explain away these peculiar events and and, and Nigel Watson talks about that didn't he he did he talks about the stories Uh, sorry these just take us back a little bit the uh, sightings around these various counties in america um what year was that again um so the most contemporary account that i read you there for was from 1897 okay so airships did exist at that point um not n- no not like not, this they were not yeah okay uh, right. air, air balloons but not airships okay okay so these are really peculiar things What's, well, what is amazing about it is in a in an age where <laughs> there's not like a telephone network, there's no internet, there's there's just newspapers and word of mouth. That there was so many sightings. There's so Recorded many sightings. Sighting. So it feels like something was there, right, rather than some kind of mass hysteria event. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, um, but what this is all building to is my. My argument, which harks back to Tommy Knockers, and all of all of these cases are are pointing to this, and, I, and I'm sure that you might have heard this, but on April the nineteenth, this is again 1897, a gentleman called S. E. Hayden, who's a correspondent for the for a, a publication called The News reported that an airship had struck a windmill in Aurora in Wise County and exploded. So this incident has actually been reported and covered on, uh, I think it's called Chasing UFOs on Discovery Channel. So it's relatively well known, but not in the context of the argument I'm presenting it. The body of a small man identified by a local authority as a Martian. I love that. Yeah. He's a, yeah, he's, he's a, he's a Martian, obviously. Uh, how do you know he's a Martian? Uh, God, how do you not know he's a Martian? Um, yeah. Well, he's not a Venetian, is he? <laughs> God, do you not know anything, man? He was recovered from the wreckage and buried and pieces of the ship were collected for display and sail and attracted many spectators but he was the this martian was buried in a churchyard and this was the focus of an investigation by discovery channel but unfortunately the 
um, the boundaries of the the churchyard had been changed and also the gravestone had been changed. So it was impossible to do an excavation on the body. The body right. is kind of lost. So what did the tombstone say, Ben? So the the tombstone has actually been removed, but what you will find at the Aurora Cemetery is a a note that refers to this. So it says, the legend that a spaceship crashed near uh, nearest in 1897 and the pilot killed in the crash was buried here. So it's interesting that they refer to it as a spaceship because it was always reported as an airship, right. but I think that has changed. But that still stands, that, uh, that note on the Aurora Cemetery in texas wow. still still stands but the the fact and this is where i go back to the fact that this is a diminutive being flying this airship again sort of takes us back to are is this a breakaway civilization and the reason that i say that is partly because these things seem ubiquitous but also if it is an alien flying a, a, a an airship, why is it flying an airship? Why isn't it flying a UFO? Flying and this saucer, is yeah. th- this is this is a weird thing. But if if you look um, if you look back at it, like I I, I put together because I was like I wonder what different eyewitness reports say about all of these different entities. So if you take the eyewitness uh, man called John Talmage in 1898 as reporting the Texas Tribune. The airship driver, he says, and this is the quote, they looked like humans but not quite, wearing aviation clothing, and the um, editor says whatever that means, they're small men with large dark eyes. If we listen to what is said about the Roswell crash... Again, this is a direct quote. Small diminutive humanoids wearing tight-fitting clothing and without sexual organs with large black eyes. I was thinking, Roswell, while you were talking about it, it's like, as as you were describing it earlier before you mentioned Roswell, I was thinking, yeah, similar size. You know, you kind of go, they've got these big crafts, but... Why are these things always flown by people who are about to, or the old creatures who are two foot tall? You know what I mean? But it yeah, did, yeah. it did remind me of, of Roswell when you were talking about it. Yes, yes, so absolutely. I, I, and it makes you think. <clears throat> I always think. I mean, there's so much buzzing through my head about that. There's almost a feeling of, I think of Star Trek. I think of the what they call it, the Prime Directive where you want to try and fit in. So you almost adapt your UFO in a way that will still function, but is you feel is akin to something that could be at least questionable that it's, it's an earth bound craft rather than an alien craft. Hence you do a, a, an airship, around that time because airships were starting to be uh, used and about and flying saucers are, are closer to our aircraft. Even as I'm saying it, I'm not sure the argument works, but 
I remember Nigel saying that people almost interpreted these things in the way that they wanted to interpret them, that actually it, maybe it was different. But you will remember when he said when people used the term airship, was that just because that's the only word they had for something that they saw flying in the sky? Well, that's true, although they do distinctly mention Describe propellers. It. Yeah. And yeah. you don't need propellers to go through space. Yeah. So it's back to the kind of Star Trek theory then, is it? Are they trying to disguise their presence by maybe not a, an overtly successful, but at least something that seems in keeping with technology around that time? Well, well it does seem strange, doesn't it, that they do that? Well, it does, but maybe they're not alien, and that's where I'm coming to. Yeah. Maybe they are terrestrial entities. So let let me just let me just continue because I've I've put together these contemporary accounts. So okay, cool. on the Tommy Knockers, this is something mentioned in a newspaper report in uh, 1901 in the US. This is um, a reporter saying they are about two feet tall and often described as greenish in colour. They look like men, but are off, most often spied wearing a traditional miner's outfit. And then when we go back to a traditional explanation or uh, appearance of leprechauns, wizened, bearded old man, men dressed in green and wearing buckled shoes, often with a leather apron. L like, again, the similarities, they're the same but different, but you, I think there is an argument to be made saying, like, these things perhaps all come from a similar background they don't have to be right. extraterrestrials or um paranormal entities they might indicate something else is there perhaps a breakaway civilization from this planet that we don't know about and i'm not talking when when you when you sort of google breakaway civilization you end up with something like uh, Nazis living in South America. I don't think that's a breakaway civilization as such. That is an enclave of ideology, for example. Mm. Um, yeah. And I'm not talking about a group of aliens who perhaps set up home here. I'm talking about something that's been here for thousands of years that has cohabited with Homo sapiens or perhaps even earlier, but hasn't made itself known and exists not in an alternative dimension but alongside us but in secret and then i came across something quite extraordinary and a book that i'd never heard of before and this this for me what I'm about to tell you brings all of these things together and makes me think okay. that perhaps there is more to what I'm saying there than meets the eye. So let me start by saying that there's an author called Maurice K. Jessup and he wrote a book called Case for the UFO in 1956. And what it did was present an argument for an ancient alien intervention and he did this long before eric van daniken wrote 
Chariot to the Good Gods. So that's 1968. So I'm pretty sure probably most listeners to this show will know about Chariot to the Gods. But in a nutshell, if you don't, Eric Von Daniken, basically he put forward, I would say, one of the most popular ancient alien theories. And I think the Ancient Astronauts show is probably like that it's based on his writings this book contained theories of an ancient cataclysm about 11,000 years ago that wiped out an advanced ancient human civilization which ties in exactly with graham hancock's theory that an advanced precursor civilization was wiped out in the younger dryas meteorite bombardment an event which we're only recently finding geological evidence for. So the it sort of starts out um, quite sane and arguing a scientific fact, right? But it gets weirder. An annotated version of Jessup's UFO book was sent to the Office of Naval Intelligence with bizarre handwritten commentary in the margins purporting to be written by two alien gypsies. Now, gypsies is a problematic word, but this is how they self-describe themselves. This is not my description. And the reason why they describe themselves as this is they say that they are alien refugees living amongst us, and the gypsies, in their own words, are how they can best describe themselves in the English language. These writers comment to each other on the accuracy of many of Jessup's theories on uh, his ancient civilization theory. And some of the comments are things like, this man is too close, how could he know? Is someone telepathically sending him this information? And the notes essentially suggest that the gypsies believe that Jessup's insights must have been channeled to him by friendly ETs. And this is when you get another level of weirdness. The Office of Naval Research, for some completely bizarre reason, arranged for multiple copies of the annotated book to be printed by the Varro Corporation, a contractor for military intelligence work, which were distributed internally within, within the intelligence office. Why they gave such a tale any credence is not known. But this book eventually became to be published under the title The Case for the UFO, Varro Edition. Now... That's nuts. <laughs> it is nuts. And it isn't... Did, did, did it say how many copies were, were made? Did it it, no, I can't find no. how many copies. And I will that tell you... That would be amazing you, to know. But if it's a print run, it's got to be fairly... Yeah, and I have been trying to get hold of one of these copies for three weeks, and I haven't been able to. But I have been able to get um, some copies of some of the pages. So, oh, nice work! It's it's not possible to get a sense of how odd the notes are without getting a sense of the style of the writing. So let me tell you, this is, this is a paragraph. If the history of the Great War of the Ancients were ever recorded, except by the black-tongued one's own tales, 
it would cause man to stand in awe or disbelief that such huge satellitic, don't know what that means, masses were ever, ever deliberately tossed through this atmosphere in an attempt to demolish all of the little men great works. Fortunately for mankind's ego, only a gypsy will tell another of that catastrophe, and we are a discredited people ages ago. Ha! Yet man wonders where we came from, and I do not believe they will ever know. So that that is... Oh, that was my next question, Ben. This man was wondering where they came from. Right, right. <laughs> I will never know. All right, so get, let me get the... the let's head around it. So there's... There's an ancient civilization, potentially alien, potentially was here, but yeah. either got wiped out, living among us somehow. Yeah. There's these sightings of the uh, airships, yeah. which potentially could be a way of showing their, their technology. Um, and then there's this incredible book, which somehow the military took serious enough to to run a publication run potentially with notes from descendants from this ancient civilization. Well, yeah. Is that uh, about it? Uh, Have I well, getting it right so uh, far? Yeah, although they describe themselves as aliens, so not terrestrial. Oh, okay. And, and, and this is where this book diverges from my original theory that perhaps these things were terrestrial and okay. th- this is where things um, just go batshit. I, there's there's okay. no other way of saying it. They go batshit. Let's go batshit. <laughs> but I will say, I every single time we come across a uh, a theory of weirdness, the military's involved, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't have anything to say about that apart from we should just note that for the future. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but yeah. here's so I'll these guys who call themselves the gypsies here's some other things that they discuss so they they do have parallels so the stories they tell in the notes have parallels to the current ufo law mythology and you can see how this links back to the tommy knockers and all the other accounts i've mentioned so this is me quoting um a direct review of one of the comments there are two groups of aliens this is what they say there are the lms little men or lemuria muans a diminutive race of aliens who have been here for thousands of years and created world religions giving mankind its spiritual books to morally educate humans and alter their development while hiding, uh, sorry, while remaining hidden themselves, they are also said to have influenced philosophy. Apparently, they love France for this reason. Their aim is to guide human beings' spiritual development. The LMs are described as little, childlike in stature, as well as being curious and benevolent. This physical description of their stature seemingly predates the Betty and Barney Hill description of the image of small grey aliens. So this is where we're, again, talking... Uh, this, is, this is in the 50s here. We're talking about diminutive humanoid creatures with a different background to us or at least a, 
a parallel background with different origins to us. These guys also describe that there are other races referred to as the SMs that are jaded, immature and warlike who influence human events for their own pleasure and have variously been at war and in an uneasy truce with the LMs with the situation fluctuating over millennia. Very little is said about these species or what they look like. They seem to have come here more recently than the LMs and are influencing Earth military forces. It's implied that they might be behind our sudden technological advancement. So this is where we're getting another strain of people who are referred to by some as the SMs, but they are completely different. This It's hard to decipher because these notes are really weird, but what you've just heard there is a, is a note from... Uh, that has been brought into current language that comes from the gypsies. And what they're saying is some people refer to other creatures that look like the SMs in the same language, but they don't have the same aims. That's what that piece means. Right. So so in, in so where we are now, the 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 gypsies as they call themselves, these are the smaller, smarter creatures? Yes. And there are, and then there are bigger, in their words, not as smart, but by the sounds of it, more technologically advanced than us. Yeah. Bigger creatures. Um, is there a sense that they are two completely separate yes. alien species? Yeah, yeah, they're, 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 not, com- they're not they're, connected. No, they're com- they're completely uh, isolated. But it gets weirder. It gets weirder. Okay. Come, come, right. come down this rabbit hole. This is a okay. comment. This is a, a comment I had from somebody who's um, been able to read the whole book and gives a little insight into this. He says the LMs live under the Atlantic Ocean in great chain cities in order to stay hidden. And because they cannot bear Earth's gravity for long, that's where they live. Water having a protective effect. So... Uh, I guess that means like water pressure. I don't know if I don't know the relationship between water pressure and gravity, but like, that's what they say. Um, And the commentator says there are many accounts of USOs. So that's uh, undersea objects and reported undersea bases recently with the Nimitz UFOs allegedly disappearing into the ocean at a magnetic anomaly under uh, Guadalupe Island and the torpedo story recounted by Commander Fravor. So what they're referring to there, if you haven't watched um, Commander Fravor's accounts, he talks about a large torpedo-shaped object that he sees disappearing under the sea when he's flying over it. So this is uh, an observer and um, commentator on this story saying, oh, okay, so these are some accounts that might suggest there are undersea beings. And this person says, I believe USO accounts predate Alonde's writings. And of course, the conjecture that an alien race who was here before would have to hide under the earth of the, uh, uh, under the sea to protect itself from earthly observers. It's obvious, but interesting nonetheless. So what, what this person again is saying is like, so these gypsies say that uh, their kind, 
the LMs that they're commentating on live in these chain cities to stay hidden and they're trying to make a contemporary with these sightings. And that kind of makes sense because um, we've seen, if if you do a cursory YouTube search, you'll hear people talking about um, the, uh, I guess, the, the yin and the yang to the UFO, which is the USO, uh, I believe the Navy call them fast walkers. So objects traveling at several times the speed of sound underwater, really unknown. Nobody has ever, you know, you know explained any of them. And this is, yeah. the, the gypsies are saying this is an explanation for them. So going back to some of what the gypsies are saying, here's a distillation of some of their notes. They once lived above ground and were revealed to humankind as a whole, but retreated under the sea with their great works and were destroyed by the SMs in a war called the Great Bombardment, where both sides used accelerated asteroids as weapons, which have left geological anomalies in the present time. This bombardment is dated to 10,000 to 12,000 years BC, about the same time as the theorised younger Dryas event and it goes on they abduct people into ships by manipulating and freezing time and using their telepathic abilities to influence people's minds and here's something that you and I will both appreciate apparently alcohol is poisonous to the LMs so they don't take you if you're well soaked so (laughs) That's, this is why we this is why we try and base ourselves at the pub as much as possible. That's right. <laughs> yes. Um so what this whole wow. this this whole book, this this weirdly annotated book which was again doubly weirdly republished by an American military institution is is saying is these gypsies are saying that there is a group of diminutive beings which aren't native to earth but have been living on earth for ages are causing some of the anomalies that we see but they describe them in very similar terms these diminutive people they use that term diminutive people which sounds very similar to the pilot buried in Texas, the Roswell creatures, the Tommyknockers, and the leprechauns, bearing in mind if we take away the beards and the shoes, but I'm I'm pleading artistic license here. The other thing I was thinking of, Ben, while we've been talking about this, weirdly, uh, I just checked, published around the time of your airship story, uh the time machine story 1895 was published ah yes um, the, the the one that turned H. G. into wells film. right yeah yeah, yeah yeah but it's funny when we were talking about these different types of creatures and the relationship between them i was thinking of morlocks and eloy and and, and kind of it was almost a, a rather than two species it's almost us in the middle of it all there there were kind of themes coming to me around the time machine and part of the plots of the story which is yeah wow so 
I guess I'm after after spending so much time with this and what I've done is distilled like genuinely listeners I've got oh, I've got 40 pages of notes here and I've turned turned it into 15 and tried to give you a story that kind of makes sense because none of it when when you start looking into it none of it really really makes sense so the tommy knockers make sense as a uh i guess a legend and um something that you can you can take with you down the mines to go well today i will find a seam of tin because the tommy knockers are on my side and it equally works to say oh you know my friend poor let's call him john died because he was lured into a mine collapse by a tommy knocker and and it gives people a sense of being able to have a frame of reference for why things happen it's the equivalent Mm. of going into war and saying god is on my side Mm. right it's that it's that sort of thing but if you take it at the face value of people who say that they've seen these things and then you put that into uh the same value as people who say that they have seen even buried the bodies of these weird airship travelers of people who say that they have seen small fairy folk and interacted with them and then you get this weird book which describes exactly the kind of characters that we're talking about there Mm. that is apparently annotated by who people beings who claim to be extraterrestrial but who knows they could be lying and the military republishes it what you end up with is this weird confusion in your mind and i must say i have been struggling for a few days to go what is my conclusion to this and i think the conclusion is i think that all of these diminutive being sightings could be related they could be a breakaway civilization whether they come from earth or from somewhere else but the fact that the military are so involved and took it upon themselves to republish this book makes things extremely peculiar well i think what's interesting if we go with the narrative of this book and the annotations by these creatures what ever they are and you almost reverse engineer it into some of the myths and legends of tommy knockers leprechauns fairy folk you know if the i believe what you said in the book was the lms which are the smaller ones yeah were here first um and i'm assuming either the lms and the sms the larger ones together were sharing this planet Mm -hmm. with us humans and you kind of and and you let's tie it in with the tommy knockers that these advanced creatures let's call them or species whether they're alien or not you can see a scenario where they helped or at least interacted with the human population 
which led to these folklore myths, legends about small creatures who sometimes helped you, sometimes were mischievous, sometimes were evil. You kind of see how all this stuff could get intertwined. And, you know, at the time of our development, you know, giving us a few helpful tips on mining wouldn't be a bad thing. Or you thought about building your pyramids like this. You know, I know it's all the kind of classic ancient alien stuff that you read, but I I like the narrative of... It would explain how this folklore of things that we don't understand because they are technologically advanced or even culturally more advanced, but living amongst us and interacting with us could develop. And then you've got, it's almost like a lovely little narrative plot twist that they go, actually, our war between the, you know, our small LMs and the war with the large SMs we need to almost detach from the human race and go <laughs> under the water and be a bit more of a secretive society that you know suddenly all you're left with is the folklore right uh yeah that's right that's right and so you get the folklore and then you get some of the hard evidence which is a mixture of uh i guess uh eyewitness accounts and then things like uh the nimitz gun barrel mm. photography but then yeah. i w- i was just whilst you were talking i was just scrolling back through my notes and um talking of evidence one of the things that the gypsies talk about is the lms who built a secret base on the moon in the late 19th century. And so obviously that is that massively predates um, our, our moon landings. And then the, 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 uh, the gypsies relate the, um, the fact that in the future, the moon, uh, moon uh, people who land on the moon will find evidence of the base, and then I found a commentator who talked about the Santa Claus transmissions. So if if <laughs> if, okay. if you remember that, where yeah. one of the astronauts says, uh, you know, it's Neil Armstrong, Neil Armstrong, yeah, Santa Claus exists, and the the theory that yeah. there is a group of aliens on the edge of a crater watching them. Yeah. This ties into what the gypsies are saying about the LM's base, and that is because, really weird. Because the Neil Armstrong comment, I think, I think I've seen it rationalised and explained was Santa Claus was code word for aliens within NASA, and while he was, I don't know if it was on the moon. I can't remember which mission it was. I don't think it was the main mission, but I could be wrong. He um he did say I can confirm that Santa Claus does exist. Yeah, that was what he said, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the I, the other thing it made me think of while you were were um, talking about that was when we interviewed Paul H. Smith, who was part of the military 
uh, around remote viewing. If if you've not heard that interview, it's really worth fascinating. But mm. Paul H. Smith is a remote viewer, psychic remote viewer, who was a senior part of the American military investigation into psychic spying. Um, you know, it was it was a it ran for a number of years, twenty years, I think. Yeah, and uh, and and you know, twenty twenty five million dollars were spent on the project, and he was part of it. And we interviewed him, and it was about remote viewing. We kind of we wanted to, we tried to push him on Roswell and aliens and stuff, and he was like, you know, my taking of it he wasn't particularly interested in that. And I can't remember if it's on the episode or after we'd stopped. Um, he was like, no, I, I don't really kind of get into that kind of alien stuff. And then he, I remember, I can't remember exactly what he said, but he said something like, apart from the moon, there's some weird shit going on there. <laughs> maybe that's, maybe <laughs> I'll tell you that, that another too. time. Yeah, I, the, what, that wasn't his words, but... No, um, no, yeah, no, that, that was, yeah, that was super interesting, yeah. Well, and it made me think about that while you were talking about this kind of, you know, because you kind of, I remember at the time going, well, I wonder what that could be. But, yeah, there's got to be... Yeah, I, my immediate thought when he said it was something about all this stuff about structures on the moon. Um, interesting, we were talking about the doorway on Mars earlier but and and kind of misunderstanding those stuff but if you were going to do it on the moon you definitely do it on the the uh the dark side wouldn't you or the, yeah the hidden yeah. side but it's I, I guess it's an alternative explanation for what could be considered paranormal human entities potentially terrestrial potentially non-terrestrial weird that the american military takes an interest mm. and again we're left with a what on earth is going on and uh, uh, no no real clear conclusions just yeah yeah it's weird but if we run with this theory what what always bothers me about these ancient civilization things is I guess it depends when they moved off the earth. You would think there would be evidence, right? You would think there would be leftover technology or fossils or, you know, skeletons that were different or things that you can test and whatever. But I, I think we did it on the... We, we did a thing on civilization, oh, on the artefacts thing. That yes, actually out of place given, artefacts. Yeah, but given a period of time most things do get destroyed. You can maybe get fossilised bones and... You know what I mean? It's quite. It would be quite rare if you went back further than Jurassic period and all that time that anything survives that would yeah. be recognisable. So maybe that's that, or they did a great clean-up job. Maybe I'm being too logical in thinking, well, surely I would find the, you know, the airship control panel somewhere, a bit like the... Uh, the tech, uh, the London Hammer. That it's like, hold on, it's encased in billions and billions of years old rock, but it's a computer chip. You know, that's that's the kind of thing you would think might turn up, right? Um, it, you would, unless these beings have a greater grasp on being able to manipulate what reality looks like to us. 
because mm. even if you look at a film like the phenomenon you you look at um pictures of ufos taken in the 60s and you look at pictures of ufos taken in the 2020s and they're really different they're massively different they're complete they look like completely different uh technologies and so you then go well why it's unlikely that a race who managed to come across infinite space in in the cosmos has changed their technology so much and then you start looking at the the airships and you think i wonder if this is just a manipulation to describe to our human brains what they look like so as not to freak them out and and you just like all of these things they open massive cans of worms and then again like we we often do you start sort of pulling these things together and go well are are ufos ancient airships leprechauns poltergeists ouija boards are they all connected in some way is this some kind of trickster thing and then from what i've just been saying i'm not you kind of go well maybe it's not a trickster spirit maybe it's some trickster entities and the fact that they've got these commentators in this book that the american military took part in you go well maybe there's an explanation maybe it is like they weren't their ships and they're not ufos they're something else and it's the only way that our brains can perceive it because of the way they're putting those images in our minds it, yeah it's possible it's possible the other thing i thought about in regards to you know the information coming out all this kind of stuff working with the military not working with the military if you take this theory of the the small lms at war with the larger sms you know maybe they run their wars differently but certainly we know from the wars that we've had a big part of war is propaganda right and, right. Man- <laughs> and manipulating the truth to your own ends or not even the truth so you I, i'm not i i don't know the the if there is any relationship with this and propaganda but you've got to think when you go well this is really confusing and that report seems completely different to that report but within their war there would be propaganda and we might be a tool within it that's interesting i hadn't thought of that yeah no that makes sense yeah but yeah just gets weirder doesn't it the more you look it gets weirder it gets weirder i like the time i think the other thing i was thinking i remember when we started the podcast and i don't think we're like deliberately uh reverse engineering the stuff that we do but i remember me and you talking about well how do we cover ufos aliens ghosts and then you've got, you know, cryptids and then you've got fairy folk. Well, it's going to all be a bit disparate. Do we have to kind of balance it out? Do we do a couple of UFO stories and then do... And actually, what I think what surprised me, and maybe, maybe to some degree it's of our own making, but I don't think so. The more we've looked into it, the more things seem to converge. Yeah. Yeah, they do. They do converge. 
because you you can't take one hypothesis of the paranormal with without it uh, leaking into another hypothesis. Because if if you take the if if you go with a really traditional, the Tommy Knockers are spirits that live in the mines. And then you ask the question, why are they spirits who live in the mines? And Stephen King offered up his own conclusion, but that's a Hollywood conclusion. If, if you then kind of go, well, Tommy Knockers, they seem really similar to these other beings. So we've now got to look at an origin story for these, these other entities. And then you have to go through that thing that we always have to go through is you have to assume that the people who report seeing them are not lying and they're not delusional and we have to we have to assume that otherwise we'll get nowhere because if we just assume they are lying and delusional then we that's the end of the story they don't exist game over if we take the fact that they're not lying and they feel like they've seen something and they like they know what they saw then you have to look at the origin story and then you have to go are they paranormal in which case where do they come from are they real? In which case, where do they come from? And if you say, yeah. no, they're corporeal, you have to find an either an evolutionary or an off-world theory for their existence. Because if they are just paranormal ghost entities, then you end up in a horrible kind of conclusion of like, well, maybe they're tulpas, maybe they're the ghosts of dead miners and you end up just reforming um folklore basically whereas if you if you're trying to get down to the root cause of what was it that this person saw and indeed what was it that all of these people buried in aurora in 1897 and felt the need to have a funeral for like what the heck are we talking about and that's when you have to get wider with your scope and look at yeah look at more um peculiar evidence but that peculiar evidence unfortunately doesn't take you to a conclusion it just opens your mind to possibilities that's all yeah other rabbit holes but yeah. it's funny though cuz uh, you know it was mentioning Paul H Smith and remote viewing I think when we were doing the podcast, I think doing that's the psychic tests on each other that we were totally in control of. And we know certainly you had that extraordinary thing with Mount Fuji. That I think that was a real turning point for me of some I don't know what, but almost some connection with all this stuff came to me at that point. Cause you know, like you said, is are people lying? Are people misinterpreting it? Are people almost post-rationalise it to make it work? But I know in that moment where you drew pretty much Mount Fuji when I was looking at a picture of it <laughs> down the other end of a Zoom call and we hadn't even discussed anything about it, that was that was a light bulb moment for me of going, I don't know what's going on, but that is incredibly strange. Yeah, yeah. It is, it is, um, and and I'll be honest with you when when that happened, I think my thought of we're in a simulation was 
just enhanced. Really came up. Yeah. yeah, and I, I and like I'll be really honest that the the whole thing about this podcast when we say for the doubters, the believers, and everyone in between, I'm not saying that that is a a viewpoint that I'm trying to purvey through anything that we're doing in this podcast. It's just I am the the more the more books I read out of necessity to to make the episodes that we make, and the more I think about the things that people are reporting, I'm trying to make sense of the evidence that is given to me and trying to not just go down the route of people are deluded, people are lying, because, as I, like I just said, that doesn't take you anywhere. So you try to find another rational explanation and none of the irrational explanations make sense to my head. It doesn't make sense to me that the ghosts of miners come back as small people it doesn't make sense in my mind that the ghost of an old lady comes back and throws pots around in someone's house to upset other people she wouldn't do that in real life i wouldn't imagine why would she do it when she's dead and so you 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 have to sort of go into realms that aren't very comfortable and most people would poo poo but you have to think about them and go is there a way that that might be possible? And the, the the way that I always go to is, well, everything makes sense if it's a computer simulation. Everything makes sense if there's a rational code error problem around it. Otherwise, I'm as lost as everybody else. And I assume that I am as lost as everybody else. But it becomes really disquieting because you sort of... You know, you churn through these books and go, "Oh my God, where's this? Like, where's but it going?" I, but, yeah, but it's funny. I was, I, I think in our, if I remember our trajectory, I think I was like always more computer simulation. Mm. You've come on board now with that. I'm now moving away from that. Weirdly, I'm going for the the ants in the Porsche that we just. Um, we just don't understand it. We know there's something weird. We're looking up at the moon or a, or a car and we're a tiny ant and we've got no comprehension of why suddenly are we moving and all, all the stuff we've talked about before. I'm almost coming to the, rest, re, the, the theory that it is just so beyond our comprehension and we spend so much time trying to make sense of it. Not that I'm saying we shouldn't, because obviously you've got to, it's like your stretch target. We've got to kind mm. of do that to kind of look at it. But yeah, it's really interesting. But I, I like, I like the, I like the way that you thought about this in terms of this connect, this ancient civilization, whether it be alien or not, how that could fit in, or influence or create the folklore of of tommy knockers leprechauns I, I really think that's really interesting i something yeah. we should return to i think oh yeah no and and we absolutely will but um it's in yeah it's interesting what you say that you've gone to the the, the ants in the porsche and you know, you're absolutely right. We, in in the, in the timeline of just the Earth's existence, 
we've got down from the trees and developed a a level of enhanced consciousness in a, in such a short time scale and to assume that our consciousness then embraces everything that reality has to offer is is perhaps naive and um sort of communicates an arrogance that we probably have as a race but at the same yeah. time it's because it's built into our wetware it's the only frame of reference we've got yeah we and we like to make sense you know we like to make sense of things yeah I, I i did i did think that a little bit actually we're coming full circle when i saw the images of the black hole uh this well, last week was <laughs> i had the because they were saying there was like the light was going in and you know all that kind of swirling thing it's at the center of the galaxy things spinning around it I just it made me feel like we we are just little even our planet maybe just little specks of something um traveling down a bath plug hole <laughs> somebody's emptied the bath which is it's like forget all this kind of intertwined theory of the universe maybe we're just in a bath <laughs> oh, do you know what I wouldn't mind being in a bath but 55 million years ago, as you say, that is... Oh, so that is probably, what, 150 million years after the Triassic period. So 55 million years ago, we are, uh, we've only got proto-dinosaurs. We don't really have yeah. um, any advanced... Well... We've got we got advanced life on Earth, but um, it's still it's still dinosaur life, um, and yeah, it's weird, isn't it? That's the time we're looking at in that in that picture. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, I, I I think we'll call it a day there before our head explodes. How about that? I'm I, I'm about to call uh, like somebody who knows what the hell they're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> No, it was fascinating, fascinating. Um, if you're listening to us uh, and you like this or any of our other episodes, we'd really love a like, subscribe, Facebook at TQM Podcast or Twitter. Um, and as we always say, write us a review because that really helps us wherever you get your podcast. If you go, if they've got the chance and you can write us a little review, that really helps us out. Yeah, and if you've got any theories on what anything we've spoken about love yeah. to hear it because yeah. any, any theory is valid i think at this point yeah we we can take the positive and the knockers <laughs> on that note um we will see you next time on the quantum mechanics see you next time <laughs>